a.m. this morning and was able to see the sun rising over Mille Lacs Lake. That was kind of cool and to witness special revelation. But this morning we're going to look at that general revelation. This morning we're going to look at special revelation from the Bible. The created order is what we call general revelation, the Bible being special revelation. <clears throat> Excuse me. But full disclosure this morning, um, tell you a story a number of years ago when I started seminary, we had a homiletics professor who said, you need to find five pastors and you need to ask them about their process of preparation for Sunday morning. So I called four of them. It was pretty standard, 10 to 12 to 15 hours of preparation. And then I came upon an old timer named Ray. I said, Ray, I have a class assignment. You need to cooperate with me. Just share with me your process of preparation for Sunday morning. And one of the first things he said is, well, Ron, I've been preaching for 40 years. I knew I was in trouble. I said, well, but I mean, do you start on Monday or Tuesday? He said, well, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I've prepared a lot of sermons. I said, well, Ray, I, 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 I usually need to tell me, do you put like 12 hours in or 15 hours? And he said, you know, my wife and I, we've been married a long time. We know a lot of stuff. We know a lot. I said, no, Ray, I just need to complete this assignment because my professor makes me do this. He says, well, I start usually Sunday morning. <laughs> so I didn't quite start Sunday morning, but I did have a lot of time this week. So what you're going to get is about four hours of prep and review and so on. So we're going to look at 1 John, and we're going to look briefly at John's defense, John the beloved disciple, of the incarnation. It was being attacked in the early church in Ephesus, and he writes a letter to correct or defend, would be a better way to say it, the incarnation, the first advent, when the living God takes on flesh. So we're going to read that, and love you to read with me, if you would, that your joy may be full. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for special revelation. Thank you for revealing in great detail. Even the very words are inspired by the living spirit. We thank you for that. And now we pray as we open the text, we will learn glorious things. We'll be reminded of things, maybe. And then, Lord, at the end, as we talk about the upcoming year, that we would gravitate away from just making it another year coming, but something special would happen in our lives as we consider where do we want to be as a family, as an individual, as a couple, so that we might progress, even as we are commanded, progress in our Christian life. 
Thank you again for the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So three points this morning. Three points this morning. And we're going to talk about the person who wrote this, John. We're going to talk about his preaching and teaching, where he's aiming, and then what is the purpose or the very end for which he had in mind in writing even these first four verses. So first of all, the author, John. John, son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple. And he immediately begins what he does so well. The first four verses, what he does in the rest of the book is what we call his way of writing. It's different than Paul. Paul, the apostle, was very linear. Peter's pretty linear. He goes in kind of in a sequence and progression. But John is different. It's what's called circular amplification. So whenever you read John's writings, be aware of that, particularly the letters. <clears throat> and what he does, he'll say a term or a sentence, and then he'll leave it. And then he'll come back a little bit later, and he'll give a greater manifestation of what he's getting at. So we're going to look at the text, and it's right here in the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen, and looked upon, and touched... And then if you look down to verse 3, that which we have seen and heard and reclaimed to you, now this, so that you may have fellowship with us. And so we see that with different terms. He'll do it with light, he'll do it with darkness, he'll do it with fellowship, he'll do it with love. Boy, it's all through First John about love. And he continues to come around and expand on it. So that's the way he writes. So be aware of that. That's just something alongside this. But in this context, the core doctrine of the incarnation is being challenged by a group of false teachers within that church. We are not told their exact names, but they are named all throughout this letter. And John is dealing with that controversy. In fact, there's a few controversies that he's work, working through with the people there in probably Ephesus, but probably a circulated letter. But then he goes on to say, that which is from the beginning. Now, what is he talking about there? That which was from the front end of Jesus' ministry. Some believe it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. But he says, from the beginning, and then he puts himself as a credible witness to the incarnation. Jesus in the flesh. Look at what he says. We've heard it, seen, looked upon, and touched. So he names these senses to what? To make sure that the church knew that he was an eyewitness. He was a credible witness. In fact, we might say he was an incredible witness when you look at all of his writings. And he brings to the forefront his qualifications. I've seen, touched, heard the Messiah. I saw his miracles. He did miracles to validate that he was, in fact, the son of the living God. One that you might be aware of is in Mark chapter 2. If you remember the story, Jesus is preaching. The house is full. They're bulging out at the seams. There's excitement. He's done a bunch of miracles. And these four guys bring a man paralyzed from childhood on a pallet or a bed, and they dig they take the roof off the house. That's, I know that's a saying now. But they take the roof off the house. And you can imagine the commotion. And they take this paralytic friend. And they tie rope where they got the rope. And they lowered him down in front of Jesus. Who's preaching in this house. 
if you remember the story, he sees the man. Jesus obviously stopped preaching. Probably got pretty quiet. You think about that happening here. And he stops preaching, and he looks at the man, and he says, get up and walk. No. You remember what he says? He says, young man, your sins are forgiven. If you're a believer, your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Even the ones in the back row are forgiven. <laughs> but what's interesting is these four men bring this paralytic and they say, heal him. Would you just get it over? He said, no, your sins are forgiven. And you remember the story, the Pharisees are really mad. This man blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God? That's the first time the Pharisees were right. They were right. Only God can forgive sins. And remember what Jesus did after that? He said, which is the greater question? Or which is more important? Or which is more difficult? To forgive sins or to tell this man to get up and walk? And he says, but that you might know the Son of Man. That's the only time, first time he used that. That you might know, Jesus said, the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Get up and walk. And so the man gets up, lifts his bed, and walks away. Now, when we read that story, we think, well, sure, we've heard that story. So I was back in the foyer here, and one of the doctors came up to me and said, do you know what that would mean, that that guy got up and walked? He hasn't probably walked for 30 years. His muscles would have to start... And then he said he'd have to bend over and pick up his bed. That's, a, that's an impossibility. He hasn't been using his back muscles. And I thought, boy, what a good reminder. But Jesus said he, he wanted to show them that he was in fact the living God in the flesh. By what? Doing a miracle along with forgiving his sins. And John is a credible witness to the work of Christ. And he is validating that this, in fact, was the Son of God, is the Son of God, because he's alive today, and he has to defend it. Now, think for a minute about that. Why should he have to defend it? Is that that difficult? Well, you might say, yeah, the incarnation is a very difficult doctrine. God takes on flesh, the likes of our weakness, and he comes and he walks the earth, and he talks to people, and there's a mystery to it. And we like to say, at least I do, that that mystery is so profound and so deep that nobody's going to get it. But there's another reason. In fact, there's a number of reasons why this might be hard to believe. One of them is exposed in John chapter 5. Jesus is with the Pharisees. And he had been doing miracles, and he did a miracle, remember, on the Sabbath. God forbid, right? You do a miracle on the Sabbath. Some of you getting out of bed is a miracle on the Sabbath. I realize that. <laughs> Looks like it this morning, too, right? And it said he'd done a miracle. He had done a miracle on the Sabbath, and they were seeking all more to kill him. But listen to why. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, and making himself equal with God. Well, much of the rest of chapter of John 5 
This is about Jesus explaining how lost they are. And here's what he says. I've come in my Father's name. This has to do with this doctrine of the incarnation. I've come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive them. But you won't believe in what? That he is God in the flesh. Because you receive glory from one another. And you don't seek the glory that comes from the living God. So Jesus comes on the scene. <clears throat> what makes them, or what has this become a stumbling block, is their being unseated. They were their own gods. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? It's kind of sounds like Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? When you partake of that tree, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Or think, or determine what good and evil is. Think about him coming on the scene. He claims to be perfect. He begins to unseat the religious chiefs. And then he has the audacity to take his finger and put it on certain sins. You ever get that when you read in the Bible? God's finger comes out and points at a certain sin. They were rebels. At the very heart, they were being unseated. And that's what we don't like. It's a new disposition that we get when we believe that we would even be concerned about obeying God. It's a miracle. The Bible says the only way that happens is the Holy Spirit now inhabit the heart, and we want to obey God. But think for a minute about this kind of scene. He comes on the scene, Jesus does, and he's asserting himself. He's making all these assertions, and they get all worked up. And John is defending that that's in fact going to happen. But even think about our lives. A number of years ago, a young man told me, or well, he's probably in his 50s. He's young compared to me. He's in his 50s, and his company sold out. He's the boss, CEO. We love that. Who wants to be the CEO? So he's the CEO. The company sells. A young man comes in, much younger, and says, well, I'll be taking over. You can get the angst, can't you? Maybe you're there. Maybe that's a reminder to us that Jesus comes to rule. He comes to take first place. He comes to be, John is saying, I've seen him, who he said he was, he actually is, and we need to remind it, he is Lord of 2022. Some have said he hasn't been Lord of 2021, but he is Lord of 2021. But John is making a case that what he's about to say in all the book, the rest of 1 John we're not going to get through it. Of course, we're going to go into the book of Philippians. Next week, we'll be talking about pro-life. But he's making a case that he has seen and touched and heard the king of kings. And then verse 2, he says, his life was made manifest. We testify to it. And then we see the first and or the major verb of this passage, proclamation. He said, I'm going to preach my proclamation through all 1st, 2nd, 3rd, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 of 1st John, 
I'm going to proclaim to you something concerning what we have seen and heard. And here's proclamation. I'm read it from the bottom. That our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. We know the word fellowship. It's koinonia. You probably have heard it. To be in conversation, to be in communication, or I like to use the word communion, to be in communion with someone. And John is saying, I have come that I might proclaim my fellowship with the Father and with his Son. So I'm reading it from the bottom up. And he goes on to say, so that you might also have fellowship with us as we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. What is fellowship? A personal experience of sharing something significant and common with others. In this case, he's going to say on it's joyful fellowship. It's a beautiful fellowship. And John is saying the basis for fellowship, are you ready for this? The basis for fellowship in the congregation is that each of us have fellowship with the Father and the Son first so that what grows out of that is fellowship. And it's interesting. John is going to make a case all through 1 John for fellowship with one another, which comes as fruitful in our fellowship with the living God as the basis for unity. But even more so, what's kind of alarming, we don't have time to do it, but all through 1 John, John is going to say the basis for our fellowship, here it is, is theological doctrine. I don't know if you've heard this statement. It's out there. It's out there again and again. We should not talk about doctrine. We should talk about just loving Jesus. Well, John is saying you got to love the right Jesus. It's the one who's a God-man. Two natures in one. And he's saying the content of our Christian fellowship is theology. And I would say correct theology. By the way, every one of us are theologians. Even your little two-fitters are theologians. They have a view of God in their mind and heart. And hopefully you're shaping it to be biblical. But John is saying, I have fellowship. And this is, this is pretty exciting. He is so excited, he wants it to, to spread. He has fellowship with the Father and the Son. And he said, that's the basis for our fellowship. And I want you to have it. It is interesting that John makes much of Jesus all through his writings, including the gospel. He makes much of Jesus. But if you ask the average American, what will encourage them? What will affirm them? They might, I think many would, they might say, encourage me by making much of me. Encourage me by making much of me. John is saying, you want to build somebody up? Make much of this Jesus. In fact, it's a great recipe to taking us away from the mirror to weaning us from me, me, me. And John is saying what did it in his life to wean him from the mirror was him, him, him. But he's not done. 
he goes on to say, and we proclaim to you, we have fellowship, and he talks about the fellowship. But then he says, we have another purpose. I have another purpose. And this is a spilling over. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see it? I think John is saying, and I could get in trouble for this one, his pursuit of his joy ends up spilling over for the joy of others. Many Christians get tripped up here. They say, never, never, never. You pursue something for yourself. You pursue something for yourself. It lacks virtue. In fact, it's sinful. Now, it might sound, we got to be very careful here. But let me say it this way. When a person pursues their joy, here it is. I'll get off the hook. In God. When they pursue their joy in God, what happens is it begins to flow out and fill up, or fill up and flow out. I think it's a devastating doctrine. I've heard it. I mentioned it at least once here. That to pursue my joy in God is self-centered and selfish. It comes from the philosophers of the 17th and 18th century. But John says, I'm going to write all of 1 John, five chapters, that your joy our joy together collectively would grow and progress and even say mushroom. A number of years ago, raising six children, I thought I was going to go crazy sometimes. <clears throat> and this is, this is what helped us parent. The pursuit of our joy first. So we would get up in the morning before the kids got up, which is usually pretty early. And we'd be fed. We'd be filled. We'd progress, and that became the joy of our home, or lack thereof, if we didn't. But John has a hankering not to leave them wondering, well, what's the formula? What's the recipe? He said, no, no, no. Our fellowship is what? It's coming down from heaven. By the way, if you're married, this is the basis. Good theology is the base of a solid Marriage, it's right there, that you might have fellowship. It's powerful. It's life-nurturing. Paul wrote, or told the Ephesian elders, he says, I commend you, or I give to you this. I give to you the word of God, which is able to what? Build you up. I don't know what your circumstances are, I've known some difficult circumstances. There are probably circumstances here that are far <clears throat> exceed mine that are difficult and hard. The promise here is in the midst of that, he will hold us. And in the margin, you can see this. It'll grow us in love for one another. It'll grow us in our love for one another. But we should back up and do one application. Think about our fellowship. I don't know if you've been around church very long, but eventually you're going to hear this. I don't feel apart. Have you ever said that? I know none of you have said that. I have. I don't feel apart. <clears throat> and <clears throat> even when I'm with others. But let me just give you a challenge. That I think sometimes our fellowship can lack depth because 
I or myself and not digging deep. Because the likes of John is saying, when we have fellowship with the living God, and by the way, here's how you have fellowship. Fellowship is mutual, right? So God speaks to us, and he does that through his living word, and we speak back to him, prayer, adoration, thanksgiving. So if you're wondering what fellowship with the living God is, that's what it is. He has spoken. It is trustworthy. And then we speak back prayer, adoration, thanksgiving, and so on. That's fellowship with the living God. And John is saying, when that is happening, and by the way, I know it doesn't happen as much as it should in my own life, just so you know that. I try to have it every day, my time with the living God, hear from, hear from him before I hear from CNN. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure you all listen to CNN. But he feeds me. And then I'm ready for the day. I've been fellowshipping with the living God, and it spills out. And John's pretty excited about it. So, a couple applications, very quickly. What's the aim of your life? Could I just suggest that we put aside that this is some kind of evil, that I pursue my happiness in God? Just put that aside. And maybe explore with me that it might actually be biblical. The pursuit of your happiness in God. By the way, whatever you're pursuing, it's the pursuit of your happiness. In fact, if you, if you watch my life and you found out that I really like to do woodworking, which I do. I'm average at it. But if you followed me around for a day, you would know it's important. In fact, it's part of the aim of my life. I want to eventually do that. I eventually want to be a millionaire. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but if you follow me around, you know that it's really important to me. What's really important to you in 2022? If we can go into 2022... And say, oh, another year. And next year at this time, I probably won't be here. But you'll say, well, we got through another year and my life didn't change an iota. Everything's the same. We, we treat our kids the same. We treat our spouse the same. We treat work the same. And it doesn't really have the glow of the joy of the Lord. Oh, I'm just going to jump to number three. What should we aim for in 2022? It's going to be different. 2021 really wasn't that fun, was it? <laughs> but we're not going to give in. We're not going to give up. We're not going to say, this is normative. All people, all places, all Grand Rapids. Amen? We're going to, by the grace of God, put in our mind and heart something new for 22. I didn't even know I could do that, 22. So I'm going to have the worship team come, and I want you to think about something. And we're going to pray about this in a minute. But for 2022, you put together with your spouse or with your children a mission statement. Something that you know you really want. And you know God wants it for you as well. And somebody told me in the foyer after the first service, I'm going to send you what I've written, and you may not like it. That's okay, I'll take it. So be thinking about that. And then we're going to pray about that after our worship team leads us in worship. One last song. <laughs>